So humans are really good at making idols. We're really good at idolatry. Now, idolatry was a term that was developed in the Old Testament, and it, is, it means that it is the worship of something other than God. Idolatry is the worship of something other than God. So the pagan world doesn't recognize a one true God. The pagan world doesn't have a one true God. And the secular world doesn't have a one true God either. And so the idea in the ancient world was to collect as many gods as you possibly could. The more, the merrier. They were in the business of collecting gods. You would defeat a nation, and what would you do? You'd add their god to your whole stack of gods. This is still true in the pagan culture today. I, was, uh, I had a good friend that was Hindu years ago, and I remember discussing Christ with him, and he told me, oh, Aaron, I believe in Christ. I was like, oh, you do? That's awesome. And then, like, I'm getting ready to like, bond with him over our belief and faith in Christ. He goes, oh, yeah, I believe in all the gods. I was like, what? Oh, yeah, all the gods. You know, just the more the merrier, the better. The more gods I believe in, the more chances I have of getting it right and of, of, of having a good life. So by definition, in the pagan world, they were idol worshipers. But they didn't even recognize that they were idol worshipers because they didn't recognize idolatry. They didn't recognize that worship of anything besides the one true God is idolatry. And even today, in the secular world, you have the same thing. They don't recognize idolatry because they don't recognize a one true God. But the problem is, we were created to worship. And so even a secular world where they don't believe in a God at all, they're going to find something to worship, which will become idolatry. And even as Christians... We're created to worship. And if we're not worshiping Christ, if Christ is not at the center of our worship, if Christ is not the focus of our worship, then we will find something else to worship, and that will become idolatry. Now, this could play out in many different areas of our life. Children can become idols. A spouse or a desire for a spouse can become an idol. Comfortable living. Maybe it's an adrenaline rush, bombing down the hill. That can become an idol. Maybe it's competition, the trophies that you know you can win. If Christ is not at the center of our worship, something else will take the place. And that's what we're going to talk about today as we start a new series, For Him, By Him, a study through Colossians. So we titled this series, For Him and By Him, because the, the main point of Colossians is that everything was made by Him and everything was made for Him. Christ should be at the center of everything because everything was made by him and for him. So we'll start off with a little bit of background information. Uh, Colossians was written probably in the late 50s or early 60s. No one knows the exact date. But we know that it, uh, in 61 AD, an earthquake destroyed the city. So it was definitely before 61 AD. We also know that Paul gives reference to being in chains. So he was in prison. Now there's a little bit of debate on whether he was in prison in Caesarea Maritima in Israel, awaiting to be shipped 
to Rome, or whether or not he was in Rome awaiting his trial with Caesar. We're not entirely sure. I kind of land more closely to the he was in Rome side. But we also just finished our study through Ephesians, and we know that in Ephesians he mentions being in chains, and he was also most likely in Rome in prison. And so there's a lot of similarities between Colossians and Ephesians. They share a lot of the same themes. A lot of those ideas are kind of kicking around in Paul's head, and so it comes out through some of this Holy Spirit-inspired writing. But there are some major differences, and I think the major difference comes from the purpose or the occasion of the letter, the reason why Paul is writing the letter. So the letter to the Ephesians, there was division between the Jews and the Gentiles. The believing Jews and the believing Gentiles, there was a little bit of division there. And so he writes to emphasize that we are united in Christ, that God has united us all together under the banner of Christ. And that's why we developed that theme, better together. Because truly in Christ, we are better together. And it might beg the question, what unites a church? Some people might think that what unites a church is its vibe. It's got a cool vibe, doesn't it? Let's, let's attend that church because it's got this cool vibe and, and I can kind of see myself hanging out with other cool people. Maybe it's a cultural thing. So you all want to be together in the same culture. Maybe what's uniting you in this church or you in a church is the love for the same food or the same things that you like together. But we know that what really unites the church is Christ. And so a church can be very eclectic in the people that are there. People that have a lot of different preferences. You can have Raiders fans and Broncos fans oh, and Cardinal fans in the same church and you're still okay with each other. Because you know that there's something greater than your own preferences and that is Christ, that he has united us together. And that was the main theme, the thrust of Ephesians. But Colossians is written for a different purpose. There was a heresy that had crept into the church. The heresy, or the false teaching, was kind of twofold. The first part was that the, there was this Jewish ascetism. The idea that we can earn our righteousness by self Denial. You know, if I just kind of gave up the comforts of life, I would be more holy than you. And, and actually, I could reach or attain a holiness all on my own just by giving up things that you might indulge in. So that was one of them. But the other one was this pagan mysticism. And the mysticism was a focus on a feeling or an experience to connect with God. And they would come up with this idea that if I feel God's presence, I'm more righteous. And these two kind of blended in together to develop, to develop one heresy. It's called the Colossian heresy. And it's this idea that if I can kind of give up the comforts of life, then I can experience God better than you. And I might even become like one with God if only I just give up the comforts of life. And so it's this idea that I can earn my holiness, I can earn my righteousness, I can be more righteous than anyone else, but I've got to do a couple things. And it's all rooted on this idea of mysticism, this experiencing God. 
So Paul corrects, he writes to correct this false teaching by emphasizing Christ's supremacy. So throughout this entire letter, we're going to be looking at how Christ is supreme, that all things were made by him and for him. And just like all the other Pauline epistles, he will then turn to how we should live based on this truth. So open up with me, if you will, to Colossians. We'll start off with Colossians 1, verses 1 through 8. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you. Since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So he begins this with an introduction. It's kind of your your typical Greek Uh, introduction. He starts just by introducing himself. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. So right off the bat, we see that Paul is the author. It's pretty much unattested. Uh, Everyone agrees Paul is the apostle, or Paul is the author. And then he identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. So first we need to know that Christ is not a title. It's not, or sorry, it's not a last name. Sometimes people get confused because we know I'm Aaron Holbert, Jesus Christ, so we think that Christ is a name. Christ is not a name. Christ is a title, and it's the equivalent of Messiah. Both Christ and Messiah mean Savior, so it's really the title of Savior. So it's Jesus, our Savior, or the Savior, Jesus. That's what Christ is here, and an apostle is someone sent with authority, So we'll see throughout, like, Acts, we'll see different apostles that are, like, uh, set on delegation from one church to another church, and they're called apostles because they're sent with the authority of one church to represent that church in a group of other churches. So that's, that's the title apostle. But there's also, in the Christian world, the office of apostle. This is a person who is chosen by Christ to go with the authority of Christ. There's a huge difference between someone who's just an apostle and someone who holds the office of apostle. The person who holds an office of apostle has to be chosen by Christ, has to be taught by Christ. So we would look back throughout the New Testament era and we'd say there are 13 apostles, so there are 12 apostles chosen by Christ, and then the last one, which is Paul. We would say that this office does not exist anymore within the church. But it was an office that started with the New Testament and finished with the fulfilling of the New Testament and the dying off of the apostles. So it's Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. So he emphasizes that he is an apostle because it was God's will. God uh, chose him specifically for this purpose to be an apostle. And not only that, but also Timothy, our brother. So Timothy, Paul includes Timothy, most likely because Timothy is with him at the time. It's not like he's saying Timothy is also the one who wrote this, just that Timothy is there with him. Timothy was mentored by Paul, 
So I think a good application point is that mentorship needs to happen in the church. We see it through Paul's lifetime. There is mentorship happening. And so the question we might ask is, who am I mentoring? Who are you mentoring? But you might also want to ask, who is mentoring me? Am I being mentored by anyone? Timothy is, or mentorship is something that needs to happen through the church. So he's introduced himself, and then he gives us who the audience is. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. All right, so this letter is written to the church at Colossae. Colossae is about 100 miles east of Ephesus. Antiochus moved several Jewish families to Colossae around 200 years earlier. So these Jews became Hellenized, and as a result were not as strict as the Jews in Jerusalem and kind of had lost their roots in Judaism, which is one of the reasons why this heresy cropped up, because they still held some beliefs of Judaism, but didn't hold fast to what the true beliefs were. And that's easy for a church to do today as well. It's easy for heresies to pop up or crop up when a church no longer holds fast to the word of God. When we begin to drift from the word of God, it's easy for us to start to twist things And so that was what was ha- one of the things that was happening in Colossae. I think we should note also that Paul did not plant this church. It was Epaphras that planted the church, and he gives the report to Paul. So Paul, if we think about it for a little bit, it's kind of cool that Paul sees this. He hears about this church that's been planted. He s- prays for them on a regular basis. And then when he hears that there's a heresy that has popped up in there, he writes to them to address that heresy. So it's to the church at Colossae, but he, notice that he gives a special reference to these. They are saints. Now, oftentimes, when we think we hear the word saint, we think of someone who is well-behaved, someone that's really good, maybe someone that's free, not just free from sin, because that's like the passive side, so they just don't sin, but they go beyond not sinning, and they do good stuff throughout their community all the time. That's what we often think of as a saint. But that's not exactly what the word means. What the word saint means is someone who, or someone who is dedicated to God. Someone who has been dedicated to God. Now you hear that and you think, well, I don't know if I'm dedicated enough to God to be a saint. But that's misunderstanding what that actually means. That means that God has dedicated you or set you apart for himself. So if you have put your faith and trust in Christ, if you've come to the end of yourself and said, I can't earn my own righteousness, but Christ died on the cross for me, so I trust his work on the cross, then automatically he takes you from no longer being a saint to being a saint. You are a saint. You may not feel like it. You may not act like it. But Paul would call you a saint. If he was addressing this church to Doney Park right now, He might say, to the saints who are in Doney Park. And if you put your faith and trust in Christ, that would be you. So he continues, or so, to the saints and faithful brothers. So you might have noticed that Paul describes Timothy as our brother, and he addresses this letter to the brothers. He calls the saints, those who are in Christ, 
brothers. This emphasizes the family aspect of those in the faith. When we put our faith in Christ, not only does he make us a new creation dedicated to himself, but he also makes us a part of his family. We are adopted into the family. So many of you know that Jen and I adopted a girl a little over a year ago. She's a sweet girl. She's got awesome hair. It's amazing. Uh, But the judge was very clear when we adopted her that there was no longer a distinction, and we were to no longer make a distinction between her and our biological kids. That she was one and the same as our biological kids. And this plays out in several different areas. She would get an inheritance just like the biological kids would. She should be loved just like the biological kids should. Every benefit our biological kids would receive from us being their parent, which sometimes isn't very many, but every benefit Harper would also get. Her brothers would no longer see her like a friend or a cousin. They would see her and treat her as as their own sister. This is the picture for those of us in Christ. Next, Paul's going to describe God as our Father. And this just isn't a reference to God being the maker of all things, but a relational reference. He's not just saying that God is the Father because he created everything. He's saying that God is your Father relationally as well. So we are now a family. We have a new dedication to one another. We shouldn't treat each other as strangers, but as family members. When someone is hurting, treat them like you would a brother or sister who is hurting. When someone has hurt you, treat them as a brother or sister and be quick to forgive. I think another amazing aspect of this is that through our sin and our rebellion against God, we all have missing pieces of our family. Maybe that your father was absentee. Maybe your mother was gone. Maybe you are a transplant and you just don't have any grandparents in town. Maybe you were never afforded the opportunity to have kids or grandkids. There are missing parts of your family. And what's so cool about this new family that God has put together is that God uses his body, the church, to fill in these gaps that have been left by a fallen world. I can't tell you how many people in the church I have been thankful for because they have filled in the gaps Yes, my kids don't have their grandparents in town, but they have a whole bunch of other grandparents here. I can't tell you how many people I've talked to that have had absentee fathers, or fathers that that just left a huge void in their life for one reason or another, and they looked towards other men in the church to help fill that gap. And the same goes for mothers. I know one of our dear senior saints here that never had the opportunity to have kids and thus grandkids, and yet she talks about her missionary grandkids 
all the time. And she loves kids in this church like they are her own grandkids, and it is an amazing thing to witness. Maybe you have a gap in your family life. Getting involved and being plugged into the church helps fill that gap because God created a church that is full and diverse and he has created a new family. So he says, to, you, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Grace is unearned or unmerited favor. And peace is much more just from much more than being just free from conflict. Oftentimes when we think of peace, we think conflict-free, but that's not what peace really is. In the Jewish tradition, the word is shalom. And shalom means to thrive or to flourish. I think it's important to note here that we cannot have peace without God's grace. You'll see these two go together all the time. We cannot have peace. We cannot thrive. We cannot flourish if we do not have God's unmerited favor. So without God's grace, we will be stuck in legalism and we'll be stuck in false teachings, which lead to death. It is only through God's grace that we can have peace. So after this introduction, then he'll, uh, he'll explain to them that he gives thankfulness for them. He starts off with, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. A couple things to note on this is that Paul prays for them often. We always thank God when we pray for you. This means that he's praying for them on a continual basis. It's not just a one time and done. I think we should be praying for other people in the church on a constant basis, not just one and done. Oftentimes you'll hear a prayer request and you know, hopefully you pray at some point for that, but you think, okay, Check that one off. What's the next one? And we quit praying for that person. But he is praying for them often. We should be a church that, are pray that is praying for each other often on a continual basis. The second point is Paul doesn't just pray, but he thanks God for them. Now, clearly, they were not a perfect church, right? In fact, the whole, that's the whole purpose of the letter. They have a heresy that's crept in. So they're not a perfect church. But even though they had a heresy creeping in, he is still thankful for them. And I think it's important to note that this thankfulness comes from a spirit of prayer. When we become, the more prayerful we become, the more we pray, the more thanksgiving we have in our heart. The more you pray for someone else, the more you can be thankful for how God has wired them. The more you pray for other churches, the more you can trust God with other churches. We should be praying for other churches in this city. We should be praying for the people of other churches, and that helps us to be thankful for those other churches. Sometimes, I know it's going to sound crazy here, sometimes people leave this church for another church in town. I know, it's crazy, right? Sometimes they talk to me about it. Sometimes they just go AWOL. Oftentimes when they talk to me about it, I think a lot of times they go AWOL because they don't want to talk to me. Oftentimes when they talk to me, they'll find 
that I'm actually way more encouraging than discouraging. And I'm way more encouraging because there are a lot of really good churches in Flagstaff. And part of the reason why I can have that attitude is because I can, because I can see that God uses other churches. So I pray for them, and I can be thankful for them, even as people that I dearly love leave this church for that church. So we should be praying for other churches. So he continues, We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you, and then he gives us sense. This gives us the timeline, right? How long have they been praying for this church? Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. So we don't know exactly when that was. We don't know when Epaphras came by and gave him the report that, there, that he planted a church in Colossae. But we know that since that moment that, that Paul knew there was a church in Colossae, he started to pray for it. He started to pray for the people of that church. There's a couple things we need to note. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus... Faith is not blind. Oftentimes in our culture, we think of faith as being this blind thing. You know, I just, I just have blind faith. But that's not what, what he's referencing here. Faith is actually trusting. You could say, since we heard of your trust in Christ Jesus, they stopped trusting in themselves and their own ability to earn their righteousness, and they began to trust in Jesus. Now, trust oftentimes... Uh, incorporates evidence, right? There's a lot of evidence for our faith. It's not blind. There are things that we can look towards to, for trust. Christian has been teaching an apologetics class at 9.30 on Sundays. Every week at 9.30 on Sundays, we get to hear about evidence for the faith. It's not blind. There's evidence that helps build that trust. And when we look at the evidence and we trust Christ, we trust Him that He can make us righteous, we trust His work on the cross, that's when you are called a saint. And not only have they put their trust in Christ, which results in salvation, but they also have love for all the saints. Now, this love is not a wishy-washy type of love. It's not a, I love you because you give me all the feels. I have great emotion overwhelming me when we get together. This love is a choice to do whatever is best for the other person, no matter what it costs you. Notice that this is not just for a few of the saints or for those that love you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ and Jesus and the love that you have for the really cool saints. It's not what it is. It's a love for all the saints. Even those that annoy you. Even those that may have hurt you in the past. A side note on that is sometimes the best way to love someone is to love them from a distance. If there is a saint that has hurt you in the past, that doesn't mean you have to put yourself in front of them to hurt, get hurt over and over and over again. Sometimes the best way you can love someone is from a distance, and sometimes the best way you can love someone is to pray for God's best for them. 
Who knows what God's best is? Maybe God's best is a broken leg. Point is, you can still love them and pray for them. And pray for God's best for them. And why can you love them unconditionally? Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. It is this hope that we have that enables us to love others. When our hope is in other things, other things other than Christ, then when that hope is threatened, that is when we lash out in anger. That is when we lash out. That is when we go into depression. So where your hope is and when it is threatened, that's when we react. So maybe your hope is in a good church. Maybe you're looking around and you're like, you know, if I can just find a good church, then I'll be a good person or my kids will be a good person. And a good church will just cure me, right? And then what happens when you find that that church isn't perfect? Because there's no church that's perfect. Then your hope is threatened and you become disappointed in church and you give up on church altogether. Maybe your hope is in a well-running government. You know, if, if only the these per, persons would get elected, then we'd have this perfect government and we can all live this great life. Well, you're going to be disappointed. Anytime our hope is in something other than Christ, other than what Christ has done and is doing, then we will be let down. So oftentimes when we get angry, it's actually revealing a hope that is threatened. So if that ultimate hope that you have is in well-behaved children, when your kids act up, you lose hope. You get angry. And why? Because your hope has been threatened. But when my hope is in heaven, then when my kids act up, I can love them even when they misbehave. When my hope is in heaven, then I can love a church even when it's wronged me. When my hope is in heaven, then I can still find joy even when the country around me is in shambles. So this love is inspired by hope. We can love those who hate us because our hope is not in being loved, but it is in heaven. And just like the love is not wishy-washy, so the hope is also not wishy-washy. Too often we use the term hope more like wishful thinking. You know, I have no evidence for this thing to happen, but man, I really hope this would happen. Hope is what our expectations should be centered on. In this case, our hope is centered on the reality that Christ has been victorious over sin, that we have an inheritance, and this is not wishful thinking, but a reality that has already started and will be completed on his return. So Paul goes on to explain how this hope came to them. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world and is bearing fruit and is increasing, as it also does among you. So on this you have heard in the word of, of the truth, the gospel. It is the word of truth, the gospel, that created the hope that they have. The gospel here is a clarification of the word of truth. So it's the word of truth, the gospel. Gospel means good news. 
and eventually became like shorthand for all of the truth about Christ because what Christ has done is good news. He took a bunch of rebellious sinners and provided a way for them to be reconciled back to God. So the gospel is good news, and the word is also true. So the gospel, oftentimes we make it the shorthand, and we give a short term of the gospel because sometimes it just takes too long to explain. But the whole gospel really boils down. We can boil it down, and we try to boil it down to this idea that every single one of us has rebelled against God at some point. We've all shaken our fist at God and said, forget you, God, I want to do things my way. And that has separated us from God. And, and that has caused so much pain and suffering in this world. No other worldview can explain the pain and suffering we feel like the gospel can. So we were left separated from God in rebellion and hurting. But God, because he loves us with such a great love, came in the form of flesh and paid the penalty for our rebellion against him so that we may be reconciled back to him. So we can have, once again, a perfect relationship with God so that we can call him Father. And all you have to do, this is the good news, all you have to do is put your faith and trust in Christ. And he takes you and he removes you from being a slave to sin and he makes you a saint, holy and righteous. Not because of anything you've done, but because of what he has done. So that's the gospel. But, but it's so much more than that. We make it this shorthand thing, which is important because it becomes easier to explain. But the gospel is all of the, of the Bible. From the beginning to the end is the whole gospel. And what's amazing about this gospel is it's all of the Bible and it speaks to every aspect of our life. So each genre, each story, each letter, each book is going to be a part of God's love and grace for the people that he created, and it speaks into every part of your life. And so how did they come to know this gospel? Well, Epaphras preached the gospel, and they were convicted, and they believed. And it began bearing fruit in their lives, and the gospel continues to reach places never dreamed of, places in despair. And the gospel continues to grow because it brings hope. In fact, that's the whole theme of the book of Acts, that the gospel is unstoppable. So often we look around and we see what's happening and we get discouraged because we think that the gospel can be stopped. But I would say don't get discouraged. The gospel cannot be stopped. And in fact, the more our country grows away from the gospel, the more the, the ripe the fields are for the gospel. This is a great time to share the gospel because people are lost and they feel hopeless. And what better hope than an eternal one? Now, some may question, I've put my faith and trust in Christ, so why am I not bearing the fruit? He says, and it's bearing fruit among you, so why am I not bearing that fruit? I think it's a legitimate question. Why am I still struggling with addiction or anger or lust? My uncle actually had this problem. He had a, sub, a substance abuse problem, and he came to know Christ, and he always thought, hey, Christ frees you from sin. 
so I shouldn't struggle anymore. I shouldn't desire to, to go return to these drugs. I shouldn't be a slave to drugs anymore. And he'd be sober for a little while, but it wouldn't be long until he'd stop, start using again. And this happened on and off throughout his life until the day he died. And I think there's a lot of people here today that still have that same struggle. And it's a legitimate question. And I think the majority of the time, the problem is, is not that you haven't been set free. You have been set free from sin, but you are not living in the freedom you've been given. So you return to your bondage the sin that enslaved you. I think a good example of this is after the Civil War, the, their, the slaves were free, they had their freedom, but some didn't know what to do with their freedom. So they chose to remain on the plantation. They chose to remain with their master. You are free. The bondage of sin no longer has control of you. But you have to move away from the plantation. And I think the only way to do that is to make Christ supreme in your life. To realize that all of you, every aspect of your life, every area is changed by the gospel. There is no area that Christ does not affect. So in my uncle's life, there were always places he held from Christ. There were always little parts that he didn't want Christ to speak into. There were always little parts that he wasn't willing to give to Christ. After all, it's just a little thing. Christ doesn't really care if I just hold on to this little sin, does he? It's not like I'm going back to coke. So these little things he didn't want Christ to have, he just wanted to use Christ for freedom from drugs while holding on to all of his other sins. And as a result, he never experienced true freedom in Christ. The only way to live in freedom is to make Christ supreme in all of your life. The only way to get off the plantation is to give Christ all of it. And that's what produces the fruit of the gospel. So Epaphras came and he preached the gospel to them. They understood it and the grace of God and truth. They understood that what Epaphras was teaching was true and it pr produced fruit in their lives. And then Paul describes Epaphras a little more. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So this was a means of encouraging Paul. Epaphras shared what was happening in Colossae with them and that encouraged Paul. I don't think any of the converts in Colossae would think that Paul would care at all about their conversion, let alone be encouraged by it. I know a lot of other Christians that feel the same way. Why would my story encourage someone else? But the story of how you became a trophy of God's grace is encouraging. God can use your story of His grace in your life to encourage others.
just as he did the Colossians to encourage Paul and his company. In this life, there is temptation to find hope in all sorts of places. The only hope that gives life that is eternal is the hope found in Christ. Because all things are made by him and all things are made for him. And the only true life-changing hope is found in him. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for a group of believers in Colossae that loved all the saints, that were growing in your grace. And that Paul loved them, even though they let a heresy creep in, Paul was still thankful for them and loved them enough to write them a letter to correct their false teaching. And we pray that you would help us to do the same, to look at other churches not with envy or to look at other churches not discouraged, but to thank you for fellow believers. And Lord, we pray that you would help us make you the center of our lives, that we would not hold on to any other idol, that we would worship nothing other than you. In your name we pray.